0: And our text this morning is found in verses 16 through 21. And that's a considerable passage uh, in comparison to what we've been looking at in one or two verses in the last few weeks. But beginning with verse 16 as God continues to uh, impose his sentence and his judgments upon the woman and the man, in other words, upon Eve and upon Adam, after already having imposed a curse and a sentence of judgment upon Satan. It says in verse 16, Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow, thorns also, and thistle shall it bring forth to thee. Thou shalt eat the herb of the field, and the sweat of thy face shall thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it was thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, Because she was the mother of all living, unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. Sometimes in our day and age, when we hear the word curse, we tend to consider it lightly and maybe even humorously, uh, possibly picturing in our minds some voodoo witch doctor sticking pins in a small doll or we might think of verbal curses you know every, uh, every culture seems to have within, uh, within themselves uh, some kind of curses that they give to people uh, uh, but uh, James Montgomery Boyce recalls some uh, Jewish curses I figure they're Yiddish curses as well but uh, uh, curses like this uh, may your brain surgeon have the palsy Or, may God let everything happen to you that you're thinking about asking him to let happen to me. Something of that nature. And this is kind of how we look at uh, the way curses are being done or said or given in our day and time. But there really isn't anything funny about curses in the scripture. Nothing funny about them at all. You see, we would like to believe that when God forgives a sin... Or even withholds bringing down the full measure of his wrath on the sinner. That the effects of sin should be taken out of the way altogether. That's our thinking. You know, if God's forgiving a sin, then, you know, if he's withholding his wrath, then let's just take everything out of the way. But that's just not the way the Lord thinks or operates. You know, we saw last time how God came graciously to Adam and Eve in the garden following their fall and revealed the hope of a final and glorious deliverance. Go back to verse 15 and notice what that was. God said to Satan, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. God is saying to Satan, listen, I've declared war against you. And there's a seed coming through the woman that is going to bruise your head. In other words, he's going to defeat you. That was the hope of deliverance for Adam and Eve. But we shouldn't think that just because the Lord is gracious in withholding the full measure of punishment on Adam and Eve immediately, that he is indifferent to sin or will allow mankind's first parents to escape its consequences. While we know the, the fact that the Lord did not destroy Adam and Eve and decided to start all over. He also didn't give them a free pass. As many times we think God should do. Quite the opposite we are now to see God's judgments on the man and the woman. Now I, I, uh, last time I mentioned that neither Adam uh, nor Eve were cursed by God personally. We, we didn't see that God curse them personally like we saw that he cursed Satan and the serpent. The Lord cursed Satan in verse 14. As we read today, he would curse the ground for Adam's sake in verse 17. And while they were not cursed personally and directly, being that they were still the objects of God's tender mercies and care, Adam and Eve would nevertheless experience the miserable effects of sin and therefore participate in the curse of God against sin indirectly. And so as we come to verse 16, we we find the consequence of sin on the woman. And we call that today, woe. Woe upon the woman. And God said to the woman, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Now, as we saw last time, the sentence that was imposed upon the devil, Satan, involved a declaration of war. So the consequence of sin on Satan was war. A declaration of war by God. The enemy of God would forever eat the dust of his defeat before the mighty hand of God, symbolized by the serpent being cursed above every beast created, and upon its belly it would go. But now the second sentence to be given was to the woman, and this sentence would involve woe. There was to be sorrow, there was to be pain, there was to be affliction. A sorrow centering around the woman's greatest fulfillment. Please consider this thought. It was a sorrow centering around a woman's greatest fulfillment, the bringing forth and the bringing up of children. The bringing forth and the bringing up of children. Remember that the judgment upon the woman was certainly not found in childbirth. It wasn't childbirth that was the curse or the judgment. Which was always, it was always God's plan. In other words, childbirth was always God's plan for producing the next generation. Go back to verse 28 of chapter 1 of Genesis. God blessed them and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. This is how man and woman were created. This is how they were designed. And the woman then would be designed to give birth to be fruitful to be multiplying and to be replenishing the earth but rather the judgment would be in the difficulties that would accompany the burying of children those of you who are here today who are mothers who have experienced motherhood through your pregnancy through your time of carrying a child after the fall of course There was pain, there were afflictions, there were times I'm sure that some of you moms were saying, this is too much, what about the earlier parts of it, morning sickness, what about the later parts of it, Ah, pain, labor, when is this all going to be over, Lord, nine months is just too much. You'll notice the ladies are not laughing. Because they know what I'm talking about. Pain. What were the guys doing all this time? (laughs) Uh, We won't talk about the guys. Hopefully they were praying for you ladies. But there was difficulty in the bearing of children. And yet God's grace is evident when redemption comes through the woman's childbearing. And this is what we sometimes are wondering about very much so because of what we read in the scriptures. Take for example what Paul says in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 9 through 15. This is a very important and crucial part of our understanding of this judgment that God gives to women. So please turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 9 through 15 in your, in your Bibles. And I begin in verse 9 because uh, I want to give you context here as to how Paul is setting all of this up. But Paul says, in like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety. Now, I, I, that's the King James Version, which is what I'm using, but uh, literally that means modesty and self-control. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with modesty and self-control, with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly array. So it's not on the outward, it's what is on the inward, as verse 10 says, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. By the way, let me just say that at this point in time that Paul is not uh, being a chauvinistic pig when he says, let the women learn in silence with all subjection. Please understand that one of the greatest, one of the greatest supports of women has been the word of God and the church. And you consider any any culture, any society outside of that. Now, certainly sometimes within the church there are some things, uh, very legalistic things and ways that some people uh, handle uh, relationships with men and women, but, you know, we're not going to talk about that. But just think of other cultures outside of Christianity, outside of Judeo-Christianity, because even the Jewish people, you know, honor women. Please understand, again, what Paul is not saying. He's not saying this because he's trying to put women in their place. But again, using the understanding of what we're reading here in Genesis chapter 3, he says, let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. Why? He says, but I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence in the meetings, the churches. For Adam was formed first, or for Adam was first formed, then Eve, taking the order that God had placed in the garden. But notice verse 14, an even more critical thought. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Now stop again and remember what we taught about this in, in uh, Genesis chapter 3 where, you know, certainly we know the woman was deceived. Adam was not deceived, but the fact of the matter is the greatest uh, uh, part of the sin was in, in Adam's not doing anything, not taking responsibility. Adam was the most responsible here. So again, Paul is not trying to uh, justify Adam and, and, not, uh, and, and not support Eve. He's just stating the facts as we go. Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. But notice verse 15. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue, they women, if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. Now, while Paul's statement in verse 15 has been considered to be one of the most difficult verses in the New Testament to interpret, it becomes clearer when we consider the full sentence given to Eve. Now, let's go back. Keep your, your hand here in 1 in first, uh, first Timothy 2. Go back to Genesis chapter 3 for just a moment because we're going to go back and forth for just a little bit. Again, remember what it says. And I want you to, to, to notice the last part of this verse. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception and sorrow. Thou shalt bring forth children. And notice this. And thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Interesting. To be saved in childbearing, as Paul puts it here in this letter to Timothy, can be interpreted as, uh, actually kind of in four ways. It can be interpreted as either, uh, when he says that they're saved in childbearing, uh, it can be interpreted as either uh, being preserved physically through the difficult and dangerous process of childbirth, Those of you who are moms, raise your hands, moms, if you're here. We'd love to honor you, and not just on Mother's Day, but even today. What a blessing. What a blessing you are. And guess what? You're all here. You made it through the difficulty and the dangers of childbirth. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for that. Is that what Paul is just talking about? Just the preservation of the physical through the danger. Of childbirth. It's possible but it's not in context. Second thing is that uh, he may be speaking of. uh, When he says saved in childbearing. uh, That uh, the women are preserved from insignificance. By means of her role in the family. Now I do want you to take this into consideration. That women are preserved or saved in childbearing. From insignificance by means of her role in the family. I'll explain that in just a moment. A third uh, interpretation would be that it it could refer to being saved through the ultimate childbirth of Jesus Christ the Savior. So it's a very broad, broad look uh, of being saved through the ultimate childbirth of Jesus the Savior as an indirect reference to Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman. You know, coming through there comes the salvation of man. So that's possible. And then lastly, it may mean to be kept from the corruption of society by being at home raising children that's that's a little far-fetched but what makes the statement even more difficult to understand of what Paul is saying in verse 15 of 2nd Timothy 2 or 1st Timothy 2 I should say is the last clause at the end of the verse because in that particular verse again I want you to see it it says if they continue in faith It says, notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity, which is love, and holiness with sobriety. So whichever of the four interpretations of the first part of the verse you might understand to be the affirmation of this salvation, it is dependent on a woman's willingness to abide in the virtues of faith, love, and holiness with sobriety. So, if this be the case, then that second interpretation that I gave you, to be preserved from insignificance by means of her role in the family, would seem most likely. Consider that a woman will find her greatest satisfaction and meaning in life not in seeking the male role, not in seeking the male role, but in fulfilling God's design for her as wife and mother with faith with love and with holiness with propriety or sobriety or self-restraint. The self-restraint was beautifully given to us in verse 9 when it says, In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with modesty, sobriety, shamefacedness and sobriety. To fulfill that role, To have significance. Women in the church have a significance. Not just because women are able to give birth. God designed you that way, ladies, to do so. It is knowing that God gave that, that, that significance to you for a reason. Now, here's where it gets tough, but you have to follow along with me. Be patient. There was to be subservience. In other words, there was to be subordination in the role of the woman toward her husband. Not as some men think it has to be. Not to put the woman about 10 feet behind the man as they walk down the street, carrying everything. Well, the man freely flows. No. That's not the understanding. Not that the wife wears dumpy clothes and serves the man sitting on his throne in the house as the king of the castle. No. 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 The woman was created from the side of man to be a helpmeet, side by side not behind not in front not above and not below the feet from the side but Paul said it best when he said the Adam was formed first and then Eve God always lays down his his form of order But when you go back to Genesis chapter 3, the text in Genesis exposes not subordination, it exposes insubordination. It exposes an insubordination. And God says in verse 16, thy desire shall be to thy husband and he shall rule over thee. Now, if we were just to take those words in that particular form, some people say, oh, the woman's desire is to be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. That's the, the guy, the, the guy likes that, they, they like that part. That's not what God meant it. And we're not really understanding. It's not a misquote here, and it's not a mistranslation, but we don't get the full force of, the, of, of, of what God said in the Hebrew because the most literal translation of this first phrase can be stated this way your longing god saying to the woman your longing and stretching out after shall be against your husband your desire is not so much oh i just desire my husband Ooh. I know, ladies, I know how you fell over backwards because of the, you know, oh, he looks so cute, I like can chulo, and you know, all this kind of stuff. It's not that. You're long, your desire is against your husband. And he shall rule over you. And you're not going to like it. Now what happened back in the first five verses of chapter 3? See, in other words, the woman in her sin did indeed usurp the headship of the man. Who was created first? Adam. Who received the commandment? Adam. Who had walked with God in fellowship and received the word of God? Adam. Who was responsible then? when Eve was created from his side, to let Eve know, this is God, we respect him, we honor him, he's the one who is our God, we are to love him, we are to serve him. Adam was responsible. I told you, as we saw very clearly in those first few verses, that Adam was already there. Adam was not running around, you know, checking out the fruit on other trees. He was there. She did did indeed usurp the headship of man and the man was no less guilty. As we're going to see in the next verse. But what would be lost in the disobedience of man and woman was God's original purpose and plan for love between his initial creations. That was lost. Go back to Genesis chapter 2 verse 21. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam and he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. We are now one. Who gave him that revelation? God gave him that revelation. That they were now one. And what was going to bind them together was the love of God. For each other. Because God had loved them. To create them in his image. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother. And shall cleave unto his wife. Cling together. Almost glued to the point of being one. And they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Why? Because they were in the perfect environment where God had blessed them to be one. And that was destroyed. By the way... The submission of the woman to the husband was not to be identified as part of a curse or as a mandate for husbands to have sovereign power over their wives because the New Testament makes it clear that husbands and wives who love each other and are filled with the Spirit will be submissive to each other. Paul says in Ephesians 5 verse 18, first of all this is a general statement, but I want you to know what is... Written before he talks about husbands and wives. He says, Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the spirit. That's to every believer, man and woman, husband and wife. Be filled with the spirit. A few verses later, in verse twenty-one, Paul goes on to say, Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. So therefore, husbands and wives are to submit, submit to one another in the fear of God, before God. In essence, you're to submit together to the Lord who has loved you and made you the way he has. And then to make that point of of showing how the husband and wife are examples of the love between Christ and the church, he goes on to say, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Does he forget to tell her to love or tell women to love their husbands? No, they already love their husbands. The understanding is submit. Why? Go back to the garden. That was God's intention. And again, it's loving submission not fearful submission i'm the king of the house no loving submission submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the lord we know the lord isn't going to come down hard on on us in that particular respect so that's how husbands are to be because he goes on to say in the next verse for the husband is the head of the wife even as Christ is the head of the church and he's the savior of the body therefore as the church is subject unto, the, uh, unto Christ so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. We're supposed to submit to one another anyway and we do so in love so what, who's, who's losing out? But then he says in verse twenty-five, "Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for it." Husbands, are you ready to give yourselves for your for your wives? Christ was ready to give His life for His bride, the church. As a matter of fact, He's not only ready and willing; He did it. He gave of Himself. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But notice there's purpose behind this relationship because it says that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word. Husbands are you teaching your wives the word of God? That he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Are we getting the picture of what God originally intended here? That's the old idea. J. Vernon McGee says something that bears repeating, and I want you to listen carefully to what he says. It was the sin of Eve that brought sin into the world now every time a woman bears a child she brings a sinner into the world that is all she can bring into the world but mary brought the lord jesus the savior into the world so how are women saved by childbearing because Mary brought the Savior into the world. Don't ever say that a woman brought sin into the world unless you're prepared to add that woman also brought the Savior into the world. My friend, no man provided a Savior. A woman did. However, each individual woman is saved by faith. The same as each man is saved by faith. She is to grow in love and holiness just as the man is. So remember what Paul said at the very end there of verse 15 of 1 Timothy 2. If they continue in faith and love and holiness with sobriety. That was a lot to explain about the consequence of sin, of the sin of the woman. But I hope it was understandable. Because now we move on to the consequence of sin on the man. Whereas the consequence of sin on Satan was actually a curse and a declaration of war. And for the woman it was woe or sorrow or pain and affliction in childbirth. It is work for man. Notice verses 17 through 19. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake, and sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it it was for out of it was thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. As I just said, the woman in her sin did usurp the headship of the man, but the man was no less guilty as he abandoned his leadership role when he heeded the voice of his wife and ate of the tree which the Lord God had commanded them not to eat. He abandoned his role. You see, there there they were in the garden, the first five verses of Genesis chapter 3. And the serpent begins to draw Eve into this conversation, into this debate or this discussion, this theological discussion about what God has said, or who God is, or what God is, or what God isn't. And Eve, all of a sudden, begins to work with uh, this serpent in, in this discussion, you know. The husband is there. Adam is there. Eve, in hearing this particular creature speak and, and, and then uh, bring question to who God is, should have turned to Adam and said, you know what, you're the one that's responsible, you're the one that God spoke to, you here. Would she have been right to do that? Yes. For him to take a stand and to say, hey, God's word said this. This is what God commanded. This is what we're going to do. But he didn't do that. He heeded the voice of his wife. Here, eat this fruit. He heard the whole conversation. He was there. Ultimately, though, both the woman and the man exalted themselves. And here's the point. Ultimately, they both exalted themselves in pride above the Creator. Have we not said that the very root of sin is always pride? Which means we are prideful to be above what God says, above what God has commanded. Isn't that what brings us into the aspect of sin? So think about this, both the man and the woman exalted themselves in pride above the creator with personal desires to dominate, to rule, and to do things their own respective ways rather than to do things God's ways. That is why we're in trouble in this, in this society today. That is why we're in trouble in our country today. With all kinds of people saying, I want to do this and I want to do that. I don't care what God says. We're going to do things our way. We're going to live our own way. We're going to live our own lifestyle. We're going to live the way we want to live. And who cares what God says? Are we getting better? Has evolution made us better? Have our public schools made us better? By the way, if we call them public schools, we, we would think that the public has some say in what's going on. I'd rather call them government or state-run schools because they're the ones that are going to tell you what's going to go on eventually. Just this morning, I'm listening to the news, and I, I, I hear that in, in, in the uh, Denver School District, they're ready to go in and give... Uh, Contraceptives to the kids from high school all the way down to sixth grade. What's sad is, 90% of the parents in those schools, the sixth, in, the, in the elementary schools, are for it. What's happening to our country today? Another report in the same newscast. One to three year olds today are suffering from depression. Where did that come from? One to three year olds are suffering from depression. Are these not the consequences of a people that are saying to God, we don't want to do things your way, we'll do them our way? It's time for the church to be the church and do what God says. Not what man says. Here's the question that we need to ponder. Man is told, You're going to work and sweat and labor. Is work itself the judgment or is it the curse? Or was it the toil and the pain that would accompany man's hard work and hard labor? Was that the curse? Work, of course, wasn't the curse of the judgment. God told man in Genesis 1, 27 and 28, God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. I want you to remember that distinction, please. God blessed them and God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. God gave responsibility to man. That's work. Nothing wrong with work. Verse 2 of chapter 2 of Genesis, on the seventh day, God ended his work. God was working which he had made and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. You jump down to verse 15 of chapter 2. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. God says you work. The only difference is that in the perfection of the garden, every time Adam was out there working, he never sweated. And that doesn't mean that he was sitting in a hammock somewhere just enjoying a lemonade somewhere. He was working, he was tending, he was keeping, but he wasn't sweating. Why? Because the work was joyous in a perfect environment. But listen to what Jesus says in John 5, uh, John 5 verse 17. But Jesus answered them, My Father works here, uh, worketh here hitherto, and I work. Is work the curse? No, work is not the curse. But what was the curse? There was to be an unrewarding toil, a hard labor on a sin cursed earth. Remember, He cursed the ground. And along with that, there would would be this unrelenting terror. Now a terror is going to set into the hearts of man. Why? Because from that day, the presence of death would haunt the planet where the Lord placed man to have fellowship with him. The presence of death was now there. And there was another aspect to keep in mind. You see, the moment that Adam sinned, the death process started... The second law of thermodynamics kicked into motion. Entropy kicked into motion. And what we understand in the simplest sense is that everything created begins to wear down. That's not what evolution teaches, but we'll get back to that sometime. Everything created begins to wear down, moving from order to disorder. What is evolution saying today? Everything moves from disorder to order. doesn't work. It's either God's way or man's way. And what we can see today is that everything is moving toward disorder. People are getting further away from God because they want to do whatever they want to do and not what God says. Prior to Adam's sin, he could live forever. But now, he would eventually go back to the dust of the earth from which he came. The presence of death. When living in that perfect environment, they would have lived forever. God would have taken care of logistics, but man sinned, began to die, and death is a real part of every one of our lives, directly and indirectly. Add to that the fact that, that his sin would infect the whole human race that was to come, as well as all of life on this earth, as well as all of the planets that were created, and all of the, uh, uh, all of the systems that, that we can see or not see in the heavens. Everything created has been affected by the sin of Adam. In other words, his disobedience had affected all of creation, and Paul is quick to point this out in Romans eight verses 18 to 23, when he says, "For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which, we, which shall be re- revealed in us, for the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestations of the Son or the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, worthlessness, not willingly." But by reason of him has subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travails in pain together until now. The whole creation. Every planet, every star, every moon, every sun was affected by Adam's sin. The second law of thermodynamics kicked in at that point in time, and everything began to wear down. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. We are waiting for God to come and the changes from this life into the life to come. There is a body waiting for every one of us who belongs to Jesus Christ. And, and uh, you know, it's not going to be like this one that's wearing down. It's going to be one that will be forever. It's the hope that we sang about when we said, soon and very soon, we're going to see the king. And we'll be blessed because of it. If we know Jesus Christ. One of the phrases of our text that I mentioned last week was a significant uh, one, and, and that's in Verse 17. Where it says cursed is the ground for thy sake and sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. And while this verse can be interpreted as saying that the ground was cursed because of Adam. It can also remind us of the grace of God that we will be seeing in the next two verses of our text. Because you see all is not lost. All is not lost. Though in what we've read it may seem to be. While sin grows worse and with it sins troubles. The Lord God is immutable. What does that word mean? The Lord God is immutable. It means that he is unchanging. He is unchanged in the way that he is. God is not only a God that is holy, righteous, just, and true. He is a God that is merciful. He is a God that is gracious. He is a God that is love and compassion. And extends that to us each and every day of our lives. He is unchanged and his mercy endures from generation to generation. Read the Psalms. How often it says his mercy endures forever. We can even see it in the judgments of Eve and of Adam. It is a fact that Eve and those women who follow her were subjected to pain in childbearing. Those of you who raise your hands as moms, you were subjected to that pain in childbearing. But afterward, wasn't the sorrow soon forgotten? Jesus is the one that tells us that in John 16, verses 20 through 22. When, when, they, were begin, when they were beginning to sorrow because they, Jesus kept telling them, I'm going to be leaving you, but I'm, you know, I'm going to return. Nonetheless, this is what he says to them. Verily, verily, I say unto you, that you shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice, and you shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. And then he says, a woman, when she is in travail, has sorrow because her hour is come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembers no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into the world. And you now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again. Your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. Christian, no one can take your joy from you. Because Jesus is faithful to keep his promise to come back for us amen let me hear you all right i make sure i gotta make sure you're not sleeping and you didn't paint little eyeballs on your eyelids i want to make sure you're here one of those births by the way produced the savior of the world and as for man although the ground is cursed because of him the land is nevertheless productive isn't it i went back to the kitchen you know for the calvary cafe and uh, man they were cutting up them melons and watermelons and man i kept thinking boy god is sure wonderful isn't he still productive yes we've had to work and sweat to grow all of these things but praise the lord i mean we didn't grow our own watermelons i'm not saying that but somebody did and it's going to bless you this morning But Psalm 1 verse 3 says, He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither. And whatsoever he does, he shall prosper. Isn't that the blessing of God, even in the midst of our toil, in the midst of our pain? Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11, For as the rain cometh down in the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but, uh, thither, but uh, watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing wherunto, whereto I sent it. God is so merciful and so gracious to provide for us everything that we need. Now, the truth is, man sweats. Now remember, man, if you sweat, go take a bath or shower. But man sweats, but he revives again. Man dies. But if he believes in Jesus Christ... He will rise to everlasting life. And that again, not because of man, but because of God. You remember what Jesus said to the sister of Lazarus in John 11, verses 25 and 26, Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That's what he asks her. Do you believe this? You see, we can't sit here in this church week in and week out without knowing that the challenge is from God to you. Do you believe what I have said to you? And so the consequences. The consequences that God has placed upon man and woman. But this is called consequence and truth. So what is the truth? The truth of God for man's consequences is God's plan for rescue. He's rescuing the wascally wabbits that messed up. I just had to say that. I don't know why. Let's look at verse 20 of our text. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. Folks, we've now arrived at the best part of the story. This is the best part of it all. The Lord God has moved in to rescue the ones who had fallen so low and he did so first in grace. He did so in grace. I've always loved the word grace. In the Greek Chorus, the undeserved favor of God. I've always loved the words that, that, the, you know, that we can take from those letters, G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace is a wonderful thing. God's grace is a wonderful thing. You see, salvation is always... Through grace it is never through the works of man it is never through the efforts of man never through the merits of man or the sweat of man salvation is always through grace Paul says in Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God not of works lest any man should boast it is always of grace Adam had discovered, you see, that the fig leaves of his own self-effort were not at all sufficient. Immediately as Adam and Eve had discovered that they were ashamed because of their sin, and they noticed that they were naked, and so all of a sudden they're reaching for covering and fig leaves. And we've talked about the fig leaves, a little itchy. Kind of, How do you put them all together? But Adam learned that his own self-effort was not at all sufficient and very much inadequate in the presence of God. You cannot cover by your own works in the presence of God the sins that you have committed. Everything now depended on God. Everything depended on God. But before we look at verse 21, let's consider what Adam said in verse 20 because this is really great. Consider what Adam said in verse 20. He called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now, for those who may not know, this was a confession of faith in the Lord God. This was a confession of faith in the Lord God. Remember that God had just pronounced the sentence of death upon the race, but he had also declared that the woman's seed would bring salvation. And so what was Adam saying? Adam was saying, God, I believe you. I believe you. Adam confessed his faith by calling his wife the mother of all living, not the mother of all dying. Isn't that a wonderful revelation? Adam is saying, God, I believe you. You're going to send us rescue. You're going to send us salvation. You're going to send us a deliverer. And so he called his wife Eve the mother of all living. It's a great statement. And then in paradise, Eden, the garden of Eden, blood was shed for the very first time. Adam and Eve had to stand there shocked and horrified as they saw a creature taken in their place and slaughtered right before their eyes. Its blood was shed and its covering was made theirs. Think about how that had to affect them. All they had seen for the days that they were alive were were perfection and wonders of God. But because of their sin, God had to take over. Because of their sin, God was now to be depended upon. And God took an animal, which we would have to consider was probably a lamb. Because remember, Jesus was called by John the Baptist, the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. And he took this lamb, and folks, it wasn't that good. You know, God said to the lamb, Hey, you know, just unzipper that coat. I need to borrow that for some of it. No, you know what he did? He had to kill it. He had to shed its blood. And then he took the skin. That was the only way to take the skin and cover Adam and Eve. Its covering was made theirs. Just like Jesus on the cross for us, he took our sins on the cross. And he died. In our place. And he was buried, and on the third day he rose again. But by his dying, his shedding of blood, what did that mean for us? For those who believed, we were now covered with the righteousness of Christ. That's the picture. They were covered by God in his righteousness. So here was the first dramatic picture of the ultimate cost of Calvary and the horror and the dreadfulness of sin. I said on on, on Wednesday night, we've been studying the book of Romans chapter 1 along with what we're studying here in Genesis. And they have been going so much hand in hand. But I talked about how today in this day and time in which we live, even in the church, people are taking sin too lightly. Sin is a dreadful thing. Sin is a horrible thing thing no matter the level or or or, or the measure of that sin sin is sin to god and in god's eyes and folks it has been said that sin is a radical disease and it calls for a radical cure so do not take sin lightly sin is an offense to god But God has made a way to deliver us from sin. This was the first sacrifice for the atonement for man's sin. And Paul, and I want to close with this now, Romans 3, verses 20 through 26. Just consider this in light of what we've studied in Genesis 3. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight for by the law is the knowledge of sin what was the law in the garden? one commandment of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it because on the day that you shall eat of it thou shalt surely begin to die by the law is the knowledge of sin when they partook of the fruit Boom, their eyes were opened, knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All have sinned. being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I failed to mention this earlier, but when we talked about Mary bringing Jesus into this world, Mary was a sinner. Mary was a sinner, and we know that because of what she says in that song of uh, of magnifying the Lord that she sings in Luke chapter 1. What does she say? She magnifies the Lord, her savior. You cannot call someone a Savior if you don't have sin, unless you have sin. She was a sinner and she needed a Savior, yet God blessed her to bring Jesus into this world. Okay, verse 25, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation. That is Jesus, a propitiation, which means an atoning sacrifice through faith in His blood. To declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believes in Jesus. The just and the justifier. Guess what we said earlier? We have to depend upon God. Everything depends upon God. Therefore, he is the just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus Christ. We cannot save ourselves. No matter how good we think we are, we're not good enough to enter into the kingdom of God, except through the blood of Jesus Christ, who said this before he went to the cross, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so we're left with just three verses of chapter three for next time. Very important verses and that's why I saved them for next time. A lot of meat in those three verses. We'll get to them next time. But before we close in prayer... I cannot do this without challenging you this morning to examine your own hearts to see whether you are in the faith and whether you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And if you're not resting in Christ alone for salvation, then I want to urge you to set aside your unbelief and your self-effort And I want you to humbly receive the salvation that is freely offered to you in Jesus. And so, right now when we begin to pray, where you are, you call upon him. And you ask him. Ask him to forgive your sins. Ask him to give you a clean heart and to clothe you in his righteousness. You don't have to speak that aloud. God knows your heart. And he promises that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you call on him in faith with a broken and yielded heart, he promises to hear you and to perform a great miracle. Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So my prayer for you today, if you don't know Jesus, is that you will know the reality of that new creation in Christ. Before we leave here today, there'll be some people up here to pray for you. You take that step of faith, and you come and let someone know. I prayed to receive Jesus this morning. They'll pray with you a little bit more. They'll give you a Bible, or if you need one... But we want you to know that you have to start now to walk in the love of Jesus Christ and in his righteousness. Shall we pray?